to a meeting. A friend of mine invited me to this meeting. <coughs> Said he had something he wanted me to see at this meeting, an opportunity. I'm just out of high school. And so I agreed to go to this meeting. And um, I go to this meeting, and um, basically they, they drew circles, kind of like this. Maybe some of you know where this is going already. Maybe you've been to the meeting. How many of you have been to the meeting? This is way back. I think this company started back in the 70s and started drawing circles, and they've drawn, drawn millions of circles over the years. And uh, so <clears throat> in this certain scenario, my friend is in the middle there, and he's hopefully that I'm going to become one of the circles, you know, in his multi-level marketing plan, that I'll be one of his... And, uh, and so I'm talking, of course, about maybe you've heard of Amway before, uh, located right down here in Ada, Michigan, a billion-dollar company. The irony of this, as I'm sitting through this meeting, the irony is uh, my mom and dad had already been there and done that. In fact, they may have still been in Amway, but maybe not very active. But <clears throat> the whole goal of, of a company like Amway and multi-level marketing is not just to get people to sell your product, but to get them in to become one of your legs. And then I'm supposed to go out and I'm supposed to find six people who find six people who find six people on into affinity or until everybody gets tired of hearing about Amway and the market is saturated <laughs> and all your friends tune you out because it's like, oh, you're an Amway. Um, it's kind of interesting. N not that it's a bad company or anything. It's just the nature of, of that's the reputation it developed. It's funny when you think about multi-level marketing and the challenges that, that a company has. It, the challenges are getting people to join your team and then you've got to keep them motivated. That's the challenge. You've got to keep motivating them to go out and draw circles and recruit new circles and get people to join your team and, so you can grow a huge company. And that is really one of the, 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 the big challenges. The other challenge that I see, though, in this is that really, in the end, your success is only as great as your dream. And so what they tell you to do in these companies is... Well, you got to pick out, like, go to, the, go to the car dealer and find your dream car and sit behind the wheel of that car and just picture yourself driving that pink Cadillac, you know, right? I suppose today they probably have morphed it to where you take a selfie of yourself in the pink Cadillac and post it above, you know, the fridge and look at it every day, and that can drive you, no pun intended, to your success. Um, the problem is I don't know how a pink Cadillac, if it's that great of a dream in the end, is it that fulfilling of a dream in the end uh, maybe it is a vacation home or maybe it's a whatever it might be whatever your dream is you're supposed to find your dream and it's supposed to motivate you now if you want to make a better life for your family that's certainly a noble thing and I'm not saying that's bad but anytime money becomes the force of our life I think we will end up being let down now the reality is is that Christ calls us to something far greater, a far better dream, a far bigger dream, a far grander hope than a pink Cadillac uh, or a vacation home somewhere. He's calling us to something more. He's calling us to be an Easter people who will take part in this Easter revolution. And we started this series last week and we're going to continue it today. The Easter uh, revolution is the, the second part of this first message of being an Easter people. And the idea behind this is that Easter is really not just intended to be a day, but it is, it is intended to be a way of life that every day I get up and I live like, hey, it's Easter today. I, I uh, have the resurrected king inside of me who's resurrecting me to rise above my circumstances and to rise above all the issues in my life and to live for his 
glory. And the question really is, is how do we get, excuse me, how do we get from those 500 witnesses, we'll read them again in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus showed himself to 500 people and said, hey, it's me, I really resurrected. And there's 500 witnesses, and today we claim, they claim, statistics say there's 250 billion followers of Christ today that would claim to be Followers of Christ. Doesn't mean they're all authentically saved or committed, but they just would claim to be Jesus' followers. How do we get to that point? And something had to happen and a revolution does take place. And we're going to look at that. We're going to look today at the complete gospel. And I want us to see it here again. Let's read these first eight verses. We read this last week. We're going to be here again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And, or it's actually 1 Corinthians 5, I believe. I think I got it wrong. Last week and I got it wrong again this week. Now I'm confused myself. <laughs> I did two weeks in a row. And I, uh, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15, that's what it is. Okay. <laughs> I'm totally messed up here. 1 Corinthians 15. Don't know how I got that on my... Okay, here's what it says. 1 Corinthians 15, you'll have to correct that on your handout. Maybe it's right on the notes, I'm not sure. Now I would... Remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And in this passage right here, we see about four or five years ago, I came across this and recognized what I call the complete gospel. Usually the gospel is seen uh, in this way. It's seen as Christ died, was buried and rose again. And we just saw that in the text. That's exactly what it says. But I notice there's another layer here in what Paul shares. That Paul says Christ died, was buried, rose again, and then told others. That he specifically went out and told Cephas and told the 11 and told the 500. He went out and told people. And the gospel would have never been the gospel if it had not been proclaimed. Paul says that. How will people know if they have not heard? And it's clear. The gospel, if, if Christ had not rolled that stone away from the empty tomb, he didn't do that so he could, he could get out. He did that so the followers of Christ could get in and see that the tomb was empty and say, hey, something here really has radically happened. And that is when this gospel begins to really flow, when the followers begin to realize that Christ really did resurrect from the grave. And just look what happens. We go from those 500 witnesses here, Acts 2.41, uh, just about 50 days later here. We're about 50 days. We're just beyond Pentecost here. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people now are followers of Christ. Chapter 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 
5,000. So here we are, just shortly after, about just a little after Pentecost, about 50 days later, and this revolution starts rolling here in Acts. Acts 2, Acts 4, 3,000, then 5,000. Chapter 5, now many signs and wonders were regularly done by the apostles, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And in chapter 6, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This revolution is just taking off and it's spreading throughout the world. It's an amazing thing that's transpiring here as it is exploding literally overnight. Now the question I have is, what is it that drove this revelation, this revolution? What sustained it? Because as we just saw with mark, mark, multi-level marketing, that's the biggest challenge. How do you motivate people to stay excited and in the game and, and, and drawing circles and, and, and building their company? Well, how, what about the gospel? And I'm going to show us something today that I think is kind of fascinating. I've never looked at it in this sense before. But I, I want us to look at that. And we'll look in our big idea because it's right in the big idea. Here's the big idea. The gospel is the good news that is self-perpetuating. What I want to do today is I want to look at the four aspects of the complete gospel, four things that symbolize it. We can look at these four things and say this symbolizes the four aspects of the complete gospel and how each of those four things basically perpetuate the gospel. They're the motivation. They're, they're what, that's what drives the gospel. The very thing that drives the gospel is what the gospel is. It drives itself. And I hope that makes sense to you by the end of the message. So we will look at this. Let's just walk right through this. And what drove the Easter Revolution, four aspects of the complete gospel. There is a cross, there is a tomb, there is an empty tomb, and there are witnesses. And all four of them will show us what drives the gospel, what caused this revolution to explode and take off. Again, back in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then, of course, He went on to tell others. So, the Easter Revolution is motivated by love. It starts with love. It is motivated by love. Christ died and we have a cross that symbolizes the love that God has for us. When you look at the cross, think of this is the love that Christ had for us. This is the love that started the revolution and the love that drives and continues the revolution yet today. We will impact our home, our community, our neighborhood, our church, our world when we get a grasp of this love. Now, why did Christ die for our sins? Real simple, why did he die for our sins? Why did he die? Because he loved us. The question is why, the answer is love. That's that simple. John 3, 16, probably the most basic verse, most popular verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I love verse 17 though. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Christ didn't come to point out people's sin and condemn them. And you know why he didn't? Because they were already condemned. They didn't need a new version of the law. The law already condemned them. The law already said, you're a sinner. You're dead in your sins. They needed a Savior, and Christ came. Because of his great love, he came to be our Savior. That's the reality. Now, but, but think about this idea of God's love. And let's go back a, a little bit even farther. Okay, why did God create you? Why did God even make us? 
You know why God, God, God didn't make us because He needed us. He made us because He loved us. That's the reality. There was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, co-equal members of the Godhead. They had fellowship with one another. They didn't need us. They didn't need us in our problems and our sin and our self-centeredness and our self-worship and our complaining and our griping. And they didn't need us. They wanted us. Pretty amazing. They wanted, God wanted you. And He wanted you, and He made you just as you are. He made you with your personality, with your freckles, with your body shape, with your jawline, with your hair color, in your uniqueness. He did. He made you just as you are. And, and, and someday in glory, we're not going to notice somebody's freckles or somebody's jawline or all those different things that kind of differentiate us. Did you know there are over 10,000 different species of beetles? Did you know that? I mean, that's true. I've heard that so many times. I looked it up this week. It's true. I think in just one part of the Central America, there's like 10,000 species of beetles. Why is that? Because God loves variety. So there's going to be a lot of variety, and God made all kinds of variety. God loves you just as you are. He loved for you. He loved you enough to die for you. In fact, He loved you enough that He created you knowing He'd have to die for you, knowing that you would caused him all kinds of grief and heartache and yet he still said I'm going to make them anyway and then I'll redeem them and we'll have this incredible relationship for all of eternity. God in fact can you know this? God loves you more than you love yourself. That's just, just fascinating. He loves you more than you even love yourself. So the whole idea here is that this revolution is driven by God's incredible love. Now, the issue about love is love is one of the most basic of all Bible truths. Think about it. One of the most basic truths of the Scripture is God's love. And, and one of the most basic verses, look at this one, 1 John 4, 18, very short verse. We love because He first loved us. And there are two things in that little simple verse that are so profound. One is the basic reality is that God loved us first. The only reason we can love is because God loved us first. But you know the important reality of that verse, the important aspect, is that we are to love in response. Note what it says, we love. It could say we are to love. You could say it that way, we are to love. But, but we love. We love because He first loved us and we are supposed to love. We were created to love. We were created in His image. That's the reality. And so there's this idea that God loved us first, but then there's this important idea that we are to love in response. And we know Jesus defined the entire law. He defined the entire Bible, reduced it all to those two commands called love. And it's funny, every time that I'm going to quote these in a message, I'm thinking, boy, these verses are so basic. We've heard these a hundred times. But Mark 12, 28, one of them, one of the scribes came and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Of all the commandments, there's the Ten Commandments, then there's all the 600 plus or more rules and regular, all the commandments. What's the most important commandment? Jesus said, the most important is, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so God comes and basically says the whole law is reduced down to these two commands, loving God and loving one another. 
And the reality is the seeming simplicity of love is incredibly important to God. Don't miss it. Yeah, love's one of the most basic of all Bible truths. And it's probably the most important of all Bible truths. Love is what created you. Love is what went to the cross to redeem you. That is the reality of love. In fact, there's something else in here even. And what Jesus is telling them is that in order to keep the law, you had to be motivated by what? Love. The whole law is defined by love because if you're going to keep God's law, you're only going to do it out of love. Sounds a lot like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter, right? Paul said you can do all kinds of great miracles, make all kinds of great sacrifices, do all kinds of incredible work for the Lord, but if you don't have love, it's a waste of time. That's how important love is. Is. So love may seem simplistic to us, but it is incredibly important to God. And we need to understand that, that the whole revolution, the Easter revolution was motivated by love. So God tells us first that we are to respond vertically to Him. Why do we come on Sunday morning and take the first 25, 20, 25 minutes and just sing songs and worship songs to God? Because He wants us to, because we love Him. Think about all the time we spend all week complaining and griping, whatever. So we set aside 25 minutes to come and sing songs that say, Lord, we love you. We are grateful for you. We honor you. We worship you. We adore you. We love him vertically in our worship and race. We, we love him vertically when we simply live holy and sanctified and set apart lives when his righteousness shines out of my life. When we boast in his righteousness and not our own. And then we also, at the same time, we respond vertically. God loved us first, and we respond vertically. We love each other. And so I love the people in my family, even when they get on my nerves. I love my neighbors because he loved me first. I love my, I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. I love the lost in the world. I love the coworkers that I just can't stand to be around. And I even love my enemies. Why? Because he loved me first. And the reality is sometimes we think about, <clears throat> I was thinking about this, we talked a couple weeks recently about taking up our cross and following him. And the idea of taking up our cross can sound so burdensome, right? It's like, what a burden, I gotta take up my cross. But the reality is Christ says, it's not a burden. He says, follow me, my burden is light. So the cross is not supposed to be looked at as a burden. And I remembered, how many remember Marge, uh, how many remember Oak and Marge Senf going back about 10 years ago? And, and if you remember Oak, was always telling us the same story over and over again. Every week he'd want to come up and tell you the story of this encounter he had with God. But you know, Oak basically, basically got this message he said from God, and it's a pretty profound message, it's simple. But he said, we bear our cross in loving others. And he would tell me that all the time. He'd just tell me the story of his time with God and how God told him that we bear our cross in loving others. That might be twisted around. Our cross is in loving others. Somehow he had a way of saying that specifically. And that was the reality. And so we bear our cross when we simply love others in response. And so here we are 2,000 years later. Love is the heart of God. It's the heart of the gospel. 2,000 years later, this revolution will be driven, will continue on in our world, in our community, in our lives when we learn to love like the Father loved. So there's a cross that depicts love, okay? And then, secondly, there is a tomb that symbolizes our faith. Think about this. 
there is a tomb. Before Christ is resurrected, there's a big stone in front of it. And I think that is a great symbol of our faith and the role of faith because the reality is the Easter revolution is cultivated by faith. The revolution that rolls through the book of Acts and rolls on through 2,000 years later, it is a revolution that requires a deep faith, an incredible faith in God, the ability to see behind that stone. We see this self-perpetuating gospel. We see a revolution fertilized by faith, a revolution that is fueled by faith. So after Jesus basically is crucified and put in the grave and the stones rolled over there, what is the status of this Easter revolution? Pretty much dead. Pretty much dead just like Jesus is. And in fact, it's the same is true for the disciples. When Jesus appeared dead, the disciples' faith appeared dead. When they couldn't look into that empty tomb and see anything going on, their faith was pretty much dead. But when their faith was reignited, the revolution began to take off. That's when things really started to explode. Now let's personalize this a moment because the gospel demands that all of us respond in faith. All of us have to respond in some level of faith. We said it a couple weeks ago that really no one saw Christ resurrect from the grave. No one saw that. We just believe that it happened. We didn't see it. And so here are all these individuals back at the time. They've lost their faith. They can't see behind that stone for three days. That stone is, is just, just, has just killed their faith. To see a victorious and risen Christ during this time, to find any sense of hope, what did it take? It took faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1. now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Think about that. The disciples had no faith, so they had no assurance. They had no conviction. They were hiding out in fear. Once they see Christ as resurrected, things begin to change. Their faith begins to grow. Remember what Thomas, and this is really interesting, what Thomas said to, uh, what Jesus said to Thomas. He's identified often as the doubting Thomas, although they all struggled, they all doubted, they all lacked faith at this point. But here's what, what uh, Jesus said to Thomas. He said that faith is a blessing. Think about it. Jesus said to him, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's for you and I today, those of us who have not seen the resurrected Christ in person, who have not seen the scars in his hands, and yet we believe. And there is a truth that faith is a huge blessing. When you have faith, it, is a, it helps you see things you would not normally see. It gives you an incredible hope. Faith is indeed a blessing. Just imagine how different things would have been for the disciples in those three days if they could have had faith, if they could have saw behind that stone, if they could have believed something was actually taking place there. Their faith would have been transformative. Their faith would have changed their perspective. Their faith would have changed their entire outlook. They wouldn't have had to hide out in fear. The reality is faith can, can silence our fears. It can answer our doubts. It can see behind a boulder. It can see what's not there. Our faith can see into eternity. Now, here's the thing about our faith, though. Understand this about, we talk about faith. Faith is not blind. We're not talking about blind, being blind, uh, sort of a blind faith. Think again what it says in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not See, now let me give you this. Let me paraphrase this in two ways. I'll tell you what this verse is not saying. Okay, as a paraphrase, this is a bad paraphrase. Okay, 
Now, faith is the assurance of what we wish for, the conviction of our dreams. That's not the kind of hope we're talking about. I hope something happens. I hope I get to go to Disneyland someday, or I, I hope I win a million dollars in the lottery, or you know, it's not, not that kind of hope. That's a bad paraphrase. Here's a good paraphrase. Faith is the assurance of God's promises, the conviction of the activity of an unseen God. Realize what Paul keeps saying. He says it twice here in 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about how these things happened in accordance with the Scriptures. Christ died in accordance with the Scriptures. He was raised in accordance with the Scriptures. All these things happen according to God's Word. Our faith is not blind. It's rooted in God's Word. It's rooted in God's promises. It's rooted in what God wrote down. And said, he told them hundreds of years before that the crucifixion would take place and that Christ would go through this and that he would not remain dead. So our faith is not a blind faith. It is rooted in God's word. In fact, the reality is it gets even better for you and I today. It gets even better for you and I today. Maybe I put that on there, I did. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's where our faith is rooted, in the promises of God. It's an incredible, an incredible, an incredible thing. So Jesus is in, is in that grave and the stone is rolled over the door. They needed to see beyond that stone. They needed to have faith. They didn't have faith. When they got their faith back, the revolution took off. And then finally, as I said, it gets better for you and I today because our faith is rooted not just in God's word, what he has said. It's rooted in Christ's resurrection, what he did. Our faith is rooted in the fact that Christ indeed did resurrect from that grave. It's an incredible thing, an incredible reality to stop and think about what God has done. <clears throat> Moses defeated Pharaoh, David defeated Goliath, Gideon defeated the Moabites, Elijah defeated the 300 false prophets, Lazarus even defeated the grave a month earlier. God gave them all kinds of evidence that, hey, Christ will defeat the grave. He will be victorious. And their faith was to be rooted in God's word and then eventually in Christ's resurrection. <clears throat> That's the reality and as you move into the book of acts <clears throat> excuse me as you move into the book of acts there's so much suffering and persecution that they encounter they're going to need an incredible faith an incredible faith to carry them <clears throat> through all that they face here's a great uh, i just thought this was fascinating from josh and sean mcdowell in the book the resurrection in you he writes this if miracles are impossible then the resurrection of jesus could not have occurred and we must look for some natural explanation of the events but if miracles are at least possible then we can be open to the following the evidence without bias in other words whenever we hear of an event that seems contrary to the laws of nature we naturally raise our guard but we also shouldn't prejudge the evidence by ruling out the possibility of miracles just because they don't fit our categories. It's unscientific to decide the outcome of an investigation before examining the facts. Consider the following true story. Near the end of the 18th century, which is the... Near the end of the 18th century, the Western world first encountered the duck-billed platypus. The platypus, which is indignous to... Uh, Australia has fur over its entire body, is the size of a rabbit and has webbed feet. Yet since it lays eggs, it reproduces like a reptile. When the skin of a platypus was first 
brought to Europe, it was greeted with complete amazement. Was it a mammal or a reptile? The platypus seemed so bizarre that despite the physical evidence of the skin and the testimony of the witnesses, many Londoners dismissed it as a sham. Not until a pregnant platypus was shot and brought to London for observers to see with their own eyes did people begin to believe. Until this happened, some of the greatest thinkers refused to accept the existence of the platypus. The initial problem was that it did not fit some people's view of how the world operated. So they rejected it and then reached a verdict, even though the weight of the evidence seemed otherwise. <clears throat> the reality is we need faith sometimes. And we have to look at the evidence. We have to look at the scriptures. We have to look at the witnesses. We have to weigh the evidence out and say, okay, can I accept this by faith? Can I accept it? By faith. So, the cross symbolizes God's love. The tomb symbolizes our faith. Here's the third one. The empty tomb symbolizes our hope. Because here's the reality. The Easter revolution is motivated by love and it's cultivated by faith and then ultimately it was elevated with hope. It was elevated by hope. Christ rose again. He rose from that grave. And there's a great relationship that exists between faith and hope. An incredible relationship. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith builds hope and hope builds faith. And they're great companions. And so we, we need to understand here that this revolution that sweeps through the book of Acts that starts in Jerusalem and takes over the world was elevated by this sense of hope that Christ had resurrected and that his resurrection meant that our resurrection was guaranteed. That if he resurrected from the grave, that one day we would resurrect from the grave. That if God kept his world and raised his son, he will keep his word and raise us as well. <clears throat> so I'm fascinated here. Look at Acts chapter 1 verse 3. Jesus presented himself alive to them, his followers, after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And there are two things that I just think really define the followers of Christ at this time as, as they're getting ready to do ministry in her acts. One is that they are just thoroughly convinced. He proved to them, Jesus proved to them that he was God, proved to them that he was the Messiah, proved to them that he was the Old Testament Messiah that was spoken of that died and rose to life to pay for sins. He proved that to them and they are convinced that he's going to come back. He's going to leave them. Think about this. He's going to leave them. After all this, so he's going to leave and they are convinced he will come back. That's the reality. They are simply convinced. And then the other word that I think defines them is they were expectant. And I think it's just fascinating. So Jesus ascends to heaven and, and they're standing there watching him and then what do they do next? Well, they do exactly what Jesus told them to do. They go to Jerusalem. They go into this upper room. They're in there for 10 days and they wait. What did Jesus tell them to do? Wait. Go wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Holy Spirit's going to come and empower you and great things are going to happen. And they're just expectant. Jesus just left them. But that's okay. Because they're expecting the Holy Spirit. They're expecting amazing things to happen. And they go into the upper room and they wait. What's the one thing they do while they're waiting? Great lesson for you and I. What's the one thing they do while they're waiting for 10 days? What do they do in the upper room? Anybody know? They do one thing as they're waiting for 10 days. They pray. So when you're waiting on God, what do you do? You just pray. 
you just talk to God, you get close to God, you just, you just worship God in prayer and pour your heart out to Him. It's amazing. But they're just expecting something incredible to unfold here. That is so, so, so awesome. They are so expectant, so hopeful. They have been consumed by a sense of hope. In fact, let's read 1 Corinthians 15. I got it right here now. I don't know how I got that so messed up. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, oh boy, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. It's hopeless. Then those who uh, have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Boy, I tell you, there's just the reality of the resurrection. Just understand it. It is the pinnacle of our hope and our faith. It is the it is the the the, the mountaintop of our hope and faith. Everything rests on the resurrection. It just did. If Christ didn't really resurrect, ooh my. And what the resurrection does, it takes, it, it takes this and makes, it makes the power, it makes the life, it makes all of it so relatable. So All the promises of the Old Testament, everything, is so relatable. It's so ownable. It is ours because Christ resurrected in us. It makes the faith within us so powerful. It's an incredible, incredible, incredible thing. <clears throat> Think about this, that if Christ had not raised from the dead, here's some of the implications. We just read it in the passage there. Our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. We have misrepresented God. God is not who he says he is. No one is raised from the dead. Our faith is futile. We're still in our sins. Even believers who are dead have perished. Our hope in Christ is limited to this world only, and we are basically to be pitied. That is all true if Christ has not resurrected from the dead. That's what Paul just wrote. But here's the reality in reverse. Think about it in reverse. Consider it. If Christ did resurrect from the grave, our preaching is not in vain. Our faith is not in vain. God is who he says he is. The dead can be raised to life. Our faith has incredible value and we are free from sin. We will not perish. Our hope in Christ is eternal and we of all people are to be most envied. Not pitied, but envied. People should envy us. Wow, you have the hope of eternity. The hope of the resurrection in you. We have the hope that everyone is looking for and that can only be found in Christ. It is a practical faith. In fact, how practical is this, is this hope that we have here? Think about this. So let me just run you through a handful of them here. Faith gives us hope. And think about these areas. That things are not always as they seem. Faith gives us hope that things are not always as they seem. Faith gives us hope that I am not always as I feel. I don't know, I'm not always, you know, sometimes I don't always feel like I'm saved, but I am. I don't always feel righteous and holy, but I am. Faith gives me the hope that I'm not always as I feel. Faith gives us hope that God's love is more real than my circumstances. You ever look at your circumstances and say, these are my circumstances, and look over here and say, and God says he loves me. Which one is more real? 
faith gives us hope that God's love is more real than my circumstances, that my Savior is greater than my sin. I think sometimes we obsess about our sin a little too much, and we need to, we need to obsess a little more about our Savior. Because I don't care what sins you've committed, what sin you're struggling with, how great your sin is. I'm just going to tell you, your Savior is far greater. His mercy is far greater. His grace is far more powerful. And faith gives us hope because it encourages paradoxical thinking. Just go back to last Sunday's message and all the paradoxical thinking we talked about in there. Faith just encourages us to believe that yes, there is victory and surrender. That there is life and death. That's the reality. So the cross symbolizes love. The tomb represents uh, uh, faith. The empty tomb symbolizes or represents hope. And then finally we get to this last one, the witnesses, and they symbolize joy. They symbolize our joy. The 500 witnesses that Jesus went out and told, Cephas and Paul and the 11, they symbolize our joy. And here's the reality. The Easter revolution is celebrated with joy. Because he went out and he told others and they were full of joy and their joy also helped perpetuate the gospel. The Easter revolution is motivated by love, cultivated by faith, elevated by hope, ultimately celebrated with this incredible joy. And just think the Easter revolution. Think about those, those, those early followers of Jesus. They had much to celebrate. <clears throat> they had a lot to celebrate. They celebrated the resurrected king. Even though he left them, they celebrated him. They celebrated his victory. Even when at times it looked like they were maybe losing, they celebrated his victory. They celebrated the new life they had in Christ. They celebrated his mercy and grace. They celebrated the forgiveness of their sins. They celebrated the time they had doing ministry with him for a couple of years. They celebrated the, his imprint on their lives. All that he taught them in those 40 days after the resurrection, before the ascension, they celebrated everything they learned in the scriptures there. It's amazing just to, just to see that. They were a people filled with joy. And the Easter Revolution was a celebration of joy. And the fact of the matter is, faith and hope and love, when they're alive in your life, they will produce what? They'll produce joy. When you're loving, when you have faith, when you have hope, when you have those things, it's just going to produce joy. And this Easter revolution is just celebrated with a sense of joy. Now, here's the question, though. Think about this. Jesus' followers didn't just have joy. They had a deep joy. A joy deep enough to help perpetuate the revolution. Let me show you what I mean. <clears throat> One passage, Acts chapter 5. And they bring them in, of course. And I think this is so fascinating. They, they bring the followers of Jesus in on one occasion and they're basically bringing them in because they're preaching the gospel and they're telling them to stop preaching the gospel. And you know what they do when they're there before these religious people being told not to preach the gospel? You know what they do right in front of the... They preach the gospel. <laughs> they just simply say, but you don't understand. This is what happened and they preach the gospel. And here's another occasion. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And, and catch this next verse. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And so their joy was so deep, they celebrated even when they were suffering. And yet, notice the joy they had and how it just drove them to preach. It just, they didn't stop teaching. They didn't stop preaching. They could not stop telling people the good news of Jesus. 
Christ. Now, we need to get really personal here for a moment, though, because here's what you have to understand about these 500 witnesses and the witnesses that demonstrate joy. Here's what you got to understand. Today, you and I are the witnesses. Today, you and I, we're the witnesses today. We're the 500. We're the ones that go out into the world. We're the ones that are to be filled with joy, to go out and be witnesses of Christ. And, and what does this exactly mean? We're to be the symbols of joy. Those who have trusted Christ to be our Savior, we should be filled with incredible joy. What does this look like? What does this look like? Let me give you a handful of examples real quick here as we wrap up. Just know this. The gospel should be self-perpetuating in us. The gospel should be self-perpetuating in you and me. It should naturally flow out of us. And just naturally, this revolution should just be a natural thing that takes part of our world. A few examples. John 13. Think about Jesus here. He talked about love earlier, right? The two most important commands, vertical and horizontal love. Well, towards right before he goes to the cross, this is when he's in the upper room, he gives the disciples... A different, a different definition of love or a different understanding of love, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. People will know that we love God, not by our theology, not by our church denomination, not by our religion, not by all our good works. They will know we love God when, when we love each other. That's when they're going to say, boy, those people must really be hooked up with God. And today we are the witnesses of love. We are the witnesses of love today. A love that drives and motivates and perpetuates the gospel to continue on. Think about the things today that will prove who we are. How about this next verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by this, by the grace of God, I am what I am and His grace toward me was not in vain. I love that verse. I love how Paul says God's grace towards me was not in vain. Why was God's grace to Paul not in vain? Because Paul took that grace and used it to do what? To, to, to just drive this revolution. To, he was just motivated by God's grace to, to explode this revolution and to share the gospel. And we are the witnesses today of God's grace in our own life. God pours his grace into us and we should go out into the world and, and just change the world for Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The reality is that's not true. We do have hope that extends beyond this world. We have a hope that extends beyond today. We have an eternal hope in a resurrected Christ that one day he'll take us to glory. One day he'll take us to heaven. And we are the witnesses today of hope. Of all people, we should be not pitied but envied. I want what you have. I want the hope that you have. And then 1 Corinthians, down towards the end of the chapter, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a victory today that we are witnesses of, a victory over sin, a victory over sorrow, a victory over depression, a victory over anger, a victory over fear, a victory over hurt, a victory over our past. Yes, a victory over the grave. We are the witnesses today of victory. We declare the victory of Christ, that He is our defender, that He goes before us in battle every single day. And one last passage here in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding 
in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your neighbor is not in vain. And in a world of people looking for hope and meaning and purpose and significance and satisfaction and people that just feel like their life is a waste of time, let me just tell you that whatever you do for Christ, whatever you do in love is not a waste of time. It's not done in vain. And we are the witnesses today of purpose, that God will give your life a purpose that you, that, 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 that's greater than just driving a pink Cadillac. It's changing the world. It's changing your community. It's changing your neighborhood. It's changing the people around you. That's the reality. Consider that today we are the witnesses of purpose and ultimately we are the witnesses of joy because all of that stuff, again, faith, hope, and love, all of those things in our life will bring us incredible joy, a joy that the world can only, can only, can only envy. Wow. It is such a good thing to think today that we are the witnesses of joy. And so, the Easter Revolution is motivated by love because Christ died. It is cultivated by faith because he was buried. It is elevated by hope because he rose again. And it is celebrated with joy because he told others. And he told others who told us. Paul told us. Paul put it on the pages of Scripture. Paul said this is true. And all you have to do is look at the facts, look at the evidence, look at those who witnessed it, look at the scriptures, and then look in the mirror at your own life and just say, hey, has Christ not transformed my life? Has he not totally, radically transformed me? The joy that he gives me that I can find nowhere else. The gospel is the good news that is self-perpetuating, self-perpetuating even in us. Just think about that reality. That it just motivates through me to go out into this world and to make an incredible difference for Christ. So how far am I on my spiritual journey? We need to ask that all the time. We just need to, where am I at? Am I considering? Am I at the point of I believe? Or have I come to the point of believing and then receiving and asking Christ to be my Savior? And that, that, that leads us all to the point of surrendering again. We just need to surrender our lives to, to Him, to His hope, to His love, to His faith, to His joy, to His purpose. That's the reality. And which aspect of the gospel gripped my heart most this morning? When you think about those four aspects, ask yourself, which one gripped my heart the, the most? And then finally, um, in what way can I be a witness of the gospel this coming week? How can I self-perpetuate the gospel in my own life this week. Let's watch this video and then we're going to close in prayer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the Easter story. And Lord, thank you for allowing us to take part in it. That when you went out and you told others, you told us. Each one of us in this room, you told us. And we can go out and tell others. And, and the joy that can bring to us, the hope, the meaning, the purpose. Thank you so much for that. Lord, as we leave here today, I pray this message speaks to each of us in, in our own unique way. That we would have the eyes to see into our world around us. Those that are hurting, those that need the message of hope that you have told to us. Bless our week in Jesus' name. Amen.